Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth. Today is Tuesday, July 28, 2015. Coming up, we'll talk about the science of grassland health at a Nebraska wildlife refuge. And bison are manageable, but uh, it's a lot bigger job to keep bison contained than it is cattle. And in Boulder with the Savory Institute. What do you think is worse, one cow for a hundred days or a hundred cows for one day in the same size paddock? We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Let's start with the science of suspense. The movies of Alfred Hitchcock have made palms sweat and pulses race for more than 65 years. Now researchers at Georgia Institute of Technology have figured out why, at least from the standpoint of brain activity. To do this, the Georgia Tech group connected people to an MRI machine as they watched suspenseful clips from movies such as Hitchcock's North by Northwest and The Man Who Knew Too Much. As the movies played in the center of the screen, the researchers flashed a checkerboard pattern around the edges of the screen. Meanwhile, they measured brain activity in the calcarine sulcus. That's the first brain area to receive and process most visual information. During the famous scene where the airplane tries to kill Cary Grant, activity in the calcarine sulcus became very focused toward the center of the screen. When Cary Grant hid in the cornfield and suspense decreased, the neural activity reversed to the peripheral part of the screen. The researchers call what they've discovered a neural signature for tunnel vision. Their findings will appear in the journal Neuroscience. And now, time for some cock-a-doodle-doos. And don'ts. Scientists have long known that roosters, when kept in big groups, form strict social hierarchies. The ranking system begins with a top chicken and goes down to the low rooster on the totem pole. Now new research is showing that this literal pecking order controls an important behavior among roosters, when these males crow to announce the break of dawn. In the new study, a team of scientists kept roosters in a group of four, then waited for them to get noisy. The team found that the birds cock-a-doodle-dood in an orderly manner. Come morning, highest-ranking rooster was the first to crow followed by his subordinates in descending order. (laughs) The timing of that natural alarm seemed to be determined by the lead rooster's internal, or circadian, clock. When the researchers removed this top-ranking male, the second-in-command stepped in to take his place, choosing when the group would start to crow. So if you're woken up too early, you know who to blame. It's the rooster in charge. The scientists reported their findings last week in the journal Scientific Reports. And last but not least, this Friday, you can see an award-winning show about science at Boulder's Fisk Planetarium. The show is Bella Gaia, which means beautiful Earth. The show was inspired by astronauts who have spoken of the life-changing power of seeing the Earth from space. Leading the creative team for Bella Gaia is award-winning director, composer, and violinist Kenji Williams. The show combines high-fidelity imagery of the Earth from space, data visualizations, plus music and dance from around the world, all threaded together with an orbiting flight path and stunning NASA imagery 
from the International Space Station. The one-hour Bella Gaia show starts at 8 p.m. on Friday. You can get tickets by contacting Fisk. That's it for the science headlines. Stay tuned now for some looks at recent findings about healthy grasslands. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. The idea of a home on the range may seem like a quaint part of another era, but in reality, grasslands cover one-third of the Earth's surface and are a critical ecosystem right now. Today, most of them are badly degraded, and this increases the risk of famine and desertification. Grazing animals, such as cattle, get a bad rap for damaging grasslands, and it's true. Improperly managed, animals such as cattle can do terrible harm. But it turns out damage comes when animals graze too much or too little. When grazers are managed well, they can actually improve the health of grassland. That's why even at a national wildlife preserve up near Valentine, Nebraska, grazing cattle are a key to healthy habitat. Native grasses rustle in the wind. They're the mainstay of Nebraska's Niobrara Valley, which is also home to the Niobrara River, a national scenic waterway lined with thick stands of birch and pine. The habitat diversity here is really pretty incredible. Steve Hicks manages the Niobrara Wildlife Refuge Complex for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, whose mission is to protect native animals and plants. This refuge has so many different types of habitats that converge here. This refuge gets less than 60 centimeters of rain each year. So while a river runs through it, the region is mostly prairie, with prairie songbirds, the chirp of prairie dogs, and grazing giants. It's a herd of American bison. Three centuries ago, 20 million bison thundered over prairies that covered the entire Midwest. In tightly packed bunches and fleeing wolves, bison traveled thousands of kilometers. Their grazing stimulated plants, their dung provided fertilizer, and because they moved on fast, the plants they munched had time to grow back. Today, only 30,000 wild bison live in the entire U.S. At Fort Niobrara, 350 occupy 9,000 hectares of native prairie, and it's challenging to fence them in. And bison are manageable, but uh, it's a lot bigger job to keep bison contained than it is cattle they'll go just about where they want, if they really want to. To provide the benefits of grazing in our modern world, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service leases 25,000 hectares of their native pastures to ranchers and cattle. Today's a moving day for some of these cattle, and leading the charge is Bob Graber, along with two other stockmen, all riding dune buggies to cross bumpy prairie sandhills. Using their vehicles as modern wolves, the ranchers are moving the cattle off a 200-hectare pasture where they've only been munching away for half a week. A little stubborn this morning. <laughs> they must really like this pasture. Usually you go around them up and they, they just head for the, the next pasture. The ranchers move their cattle over hill after hill of native prairie then finally release them in a new pasture that hasn't been grazed for over two years. Then they head for the Rock and Arrow Ranch, where Graver's wife offers sandwiches and pie. 
But we could get a plate and start any time. We'll Sitting at the kitchen table, Graber's son, Dean Churchill, says sometimes farmers plow the sandhills and plant crops. If you tear the topsoil up in this country, it blows and, and you have massive erosion. Witness to that is if you go back 20 years ago when people put in irrigation systems and broke this land up, most of those have gone dormant. And the reason is because they couldn't maintain them and be economically profitable because they had to add too much nutrient. This sand's basically sterile. If you are going to grow row crops, you have to add fertilizer. In contrast, he says, a variety of grazing strategies can be good for the grass, including some where ranchers keep cattle on one pasture for a month or more and then let the pasture rest. Absolutely, yes. It adds compaction to the soil. The footprints within the soil allows the moisture to penetrate the soil better. As long as you don't overgraze it, why, it will become more vigorous. Poor grazing policies can destroy a grassland, but wise policies can restore it, according to the Savory Institute, a grazing consulting group. Byron Shelton says the key is to give a plant time to strengthen. Once it's bitten, no matter how far down it's eaten, if it starts to regrow, we move the animals away until it has regrown. And that way we have the roots being the strongest they can to hold soil, hold water, make the ecosystem function. And we're really trying to build the biological capital in the soil for the wildlife and for all the habitat and to make it viably profitable to have people make a living and have healthy communities. Methods like these let grasslands thrive around the globe. In Nebraska, they help cattle turn grass from 9 million hectares of prairie into food and other products for people while ensuring healthy grass for the years ahead. The prairies out on the rangeland of Nebraska are one example of how modern grazing animals can be part of maintaining a healthy ecosystem. For more ideas, here's more from the Boulder-based think tank, the Savory Institute. Its founder is Alan Savory. He's an African wildlife biologist farmer. Over 40 years ago, he made a significant breakthrough in understanding what was causing the degradation and desertification of the world's grassland ecosystems and he decided it was not really grazing, but improperly managed grazing. Here's more from Boulder's Savory Institute. I'm Byron Shelton, the Senior Program Director with Savory Institute. Currently, I'm not raising livestock, but for the last 12 years, I raised grass-fed beef. Byron Shelton. Farmers in Nebraska appreciate what great grassland they have, but they really prefer to eat beef that's been grain finished. Is that ecologically sustainable? Well, that's a big, wide, broad question. When we're trying to look at managing land holistically, whether we raise beef for grass finishing or grain finishing, or whether we're raising other species, those are all questions that we think through and we filter through some questions to test what's best for us to do. To your point of is something environmentally sound or not, you monitor your land and see. You're really getting to the question, is, is raising corn being done environmentally sound? And that would be another question. How is that done with a monoculture versus a permaculture? And is it being done in the best way we, to uh, support the uh, ecosystem processes like effective rainfall, mineral cycling, diversity of plants and animals, and catching the most sunlight we can? 
So in holistic management, we would not say, well, raise this species of animal or finish it this way. Those are all questions individual farmers and ranchers need to decide on their own. Many people argue that vegetarians and vegans do less to put a footprint on the earth and that we'd be better off if we didn't have animals that we raised for food. Do you think that's the case in some place like the Nebraska Sandhills? Would that be better to turn into crops? If you turn the sandhills into crops, it would blow away because there's very little there to hold anything. And if you're continually burying the soil, that's not a very viable answer. Nature likes covered ground and diversity of plants. And so ranching and farming and pastures don't fight nature as much as monocultures and field crops. So when we do raise field crops because we need to, how we do that and how we integrate either technology, which is expensive, or livestock to make that sustainable is the question. Now to your point about vegans or vegetarians, I know at farmers markets and when I would sell my beef, somebody said to me, well, I don't eat beef. I would say to them, well, do you drink water? Because we're managing a watershed for water, for plants to grow in. I don't really care bottom line if you eat meat or not. I would love for you to buy some of mine, but on the other hand, if you don't at all, I really want you to understand the relationship that wildlife are what make the land function. There's a relationship between plants and soils and animals. And when you take animals away on Nebraska land, you will lose the plants, whether you eat meat or not. One other thing I'd like to clarify is that one of the key things to understand in managing land is overgrazing is not how short you take a plant. We try not to take them short. Overgrazing is the fact that once it's bitten, no matter how far down it's eaten, if it starts to regrow, we move the animals away until it has regrown. And that way we have the roots being the strongest they can to hold soil, hold water, make the ecosystem function. The livestock on it, whether we're riding horses or eating beef or just enjoying the view, is all peripheral. That's all. And we're really trying to build the biological capital in the soil. Well, and so you're less concerned about how much it's been chewed during the time the animals are on it and more concerned about how long it gets to rest. Yes, grazing periods are planned on recovery periods. That is one of the key foundational principles of holistic management. As a rule, we typically don't like to take things short, but that's overuse, that's not overgrazing, and there's a big distinction there. My name is Chris Kirsten and I work with the Sabre Institute and I do public outreach and manage all of our events and training organization. One of the first questions I ask people is, what do you think is worse, one cow for a hundred days or a hundred cows for one day in the same size paddock, so they're each in the same cell. If you were going to rent from Fish and Game or BLM or any government program, those would be considered equal equations. But I think we know there's a difference there. Most people, especially if they're from the general public, say 100 cows for one day is worse than one cow for 100 days. Let's switch gears here and talk a little bit about the plant's perspective. So let's say you're a grass plant and you've got a blade of grass up here and now you've got your roots in the soil. Let's say a cow comes in and takes a big giant chomp and bites away the blade of grass. Well now your solar collectors are damaged, what are you going to do? The plant has soluble sugars down in its roots, and so what it does is it pulls up those soluble sugars, it lets the bottom part of that root die off, and it regrows the blade of grass. So now we have a tall blade of grass and we have a short root. If the animal there, doesn't matter what animal it is, whether it's sheep, cows, 
moose, elk, wild or domestic, if it's still there and takes another bite, we've broken what we call the law of the second bite. And that law of the second bite means we've taken away the reserves that are in the root system and now we can't regrow that blade again. Or if we can, it's much shorter. And so in essence, we've gone into ecological debt. What we want to see happen is we want a scenario where the animals are there, they make an impact, and they move on. They're providing the role of biological decay. If those grass plants are left alone, they grow to a mature height and they eventually die off and thatch out. Just like the thatch roof on a house that you would see in uh, developing countries, that just oxidizes. It just sits there and it chemically oxidizes and it shades out any potential for new seedlings to grow. And so that's a system of overrest. So if we go back to our equation of one cow for 100 days or 100 cows for one day, let's look at what that one cow does. She goes in there and while we might just see a field of grass, there's a myriad of species there and we want as many species as possible. She's going to go in and she's going to pick her favorites, which are usually the sweetest and most palatable. So she's going to pick her first favorite, her second favorite, her third favorite. Well, in that time, now that she's moving through that cycle, the first favorite has had a chance for that leaf blade to regrow. She goes and she bites again. We've broken that law of the second bite. That root hasn't had a chance to recover. Now, if we have 100 cows for one day, now we've built in competition. And this is a positive behavior that we mimic from nature. We see herding animals, they get in big groups, they're bunched together from predator pressure, they go through an area, they eat, and they move on. So if one of those cows is in there, she doesn't have time to go and look for her favorite species. She has to pick whatever in front of her because she has 99 competitors that are all looking for food too. So they go through, they eat, they ruminate, they defecate, and they move on. most ruminants are actually farming microbes. As they eat the grass, they grow microbes in their gut. That becomes a huge source of protein for them. So it's a symbiotic relationship in that the microbes get a warm, dark, wet place to populate, but then as they pass through the digestion system, they actually become part of the nutrition for the animal. So you're saying that cows really are not eating grass. They are feeding grass to their microbes, and they're eating the microbes. Absolutely. Uh, very little of that organic matter that starts as grass actually ends up in the cow. Much of that is microbes, and most of that grass gets passed out their backside with now probiotics. Some of those microbes that survived the GI tract come out the backside, and now you get this feedback loop of microbes that now are in the soil, end up back in the cow, and then back in the soil. So cows... We know that they are herbivores, but really in their stomachs, they're not carnivores, but they are microbivores. That's right. Yeah, cows are microbivores. That's right. Yeah, so, so they are eating grass and they are herbivores, but they are mammals just like us. And later in their stomach, they don't have any more ability to break down cellulose than we do. It's that first chamber, that rumen, that provides that magic where those microbes are actually the ones that's breaking down the cellulose and making that grass biologically available to them. People often ask, why don't we just do this with wildlife? And at the Savory Institute and part of holistic management, we love wildlife to come back. It's one of the primary goals of many of our ranchers is to have wildlife populations increase. The Savory Institute is pro-predator. We want to see the predator-prey relationship come back in its natural form to where predators keep herds together and keep them moving. That's a positive response that the land uses as a catalyst. 
So what we do as managers is we mimic that predator pressure while the predator populations come back. And so you can do that with herding of dogs or herding with horses. You can do that with electric fences, or you could do that with human herders. Well, in Estes Park, where there are a lot of people there, would we really be comfortable having more wolves around? Just clarify, in many areas, it is not going to be feasible for the predator to come back. And that's the beauty of holistic management. At its core, holistic management is a decision-making framework. So what we're trying to do is make all of our decisions in a way that's ecologically, economically, and socially quality of life sound. And so everything from, let's say, a grazing standpoint, if we're going to look at it and kind of narrow down to grazing, all of that gets mapped out on a chart. It's a holistic planned grazing chart. And you put everything on the chart for a year in advance to where you're looking where am I going to move the cattle why am I going to move them there and what goal am I trying to accomplish and then you're monitoring along the way. There has to be a balance those decisions are made based on the people in the area and what they decide to do. And so when we get back to farming if you have a place like Nebraska and you said it's not good to be eating animals because it's too hard on the environment get rid of the animals and instead grow crops, what would happen? When you're growing livestock in a range situation, you're trying to fit into an existing ecosystem and enhance it. Anytime that you're growing row crops, by definition, you are scraping away the existing e ecosystem and now trying to micromanage it, usually for pretty narrow goals, often a monoculture. And so you've removed everything away and it's not really a functional ecosystem anymore. You now have to play the role of providing all the needs. And as humans, that's a lot of complexity for us to manage and we're gonna end up with unintended consequences. A phrase used in Nebraska is that you can break ground to grow crops. Does that have a double meaning? You know, I think most of our row crop systems using as much tillage as they do, uh, you're going to see that soil get turned up and then become very susceptible to uh, wind erosion and water erosion, and we're going to see a lot of problems for that. Topsoil is our most important asset to human beings, and the sake of civilization depends on it. We have to make sure we honor that. And so in our cropping systems, we have to come up with, with systems that have more cover cropping, more diversity, um, keep the soil covered at all times. That's, that's priority number one, because we have to hold on to it. It's, it's hard to build. We want to make sure we keep as much as we can. Between grazing and crop in an arid or a semi-arid or a region like Nebraska, which is more likely to do that? Livestock in a system that was designed and thrived on having ruminants there makes perfect sense. Doesn't mean that we can't have cropping in there, but I think it has to fit into the larger plan and the livestock can actually enhance that. You can go in and you can treat an area ahead of time and actually build the fertility up prior to planting. You can come in afterwards and you can graze off stubble and residue and things like that and build the fertility that way too. So is there's ways to blend the two, but uh, it's very clear that that the Midwest was some of the most prime grasslands in the world, and grasslands are codependent on being grazed as much as the grazers are on eating grass. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. I produced today's show and was the engineer. Thanks to Beth Bennett and Daniel Strain for the headlines. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.